pastor asked me to um, read, uh, to enter the sermon and read Jonah, Jonah 3 in the ESV. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Father, we pray right now for your word to pierce our hearts and our spirits. Jesus, open our ears and our eyes of faith to receive from you today. Bless our pastor and the time that he's prepared to bring us this message, God. We also pray for peace over our world, especially the Middle East, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you hover over that area of the world? Bring your peace. (laughs) I pray that they would have knowledge of Jesus the one and only God, Jesus, the hope of the nations, that he would be the hope of the Middle East and that your will would be done there. Peace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how are we doing? Am Am I alive? Doing all right? Still got you? Awesome. What a good morning we're having this morning. So, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. This is a very unique chapter in that this is a, uh, this, so this morning is going to be a little bit uh, macro, all right? We're going to get down to your life, and I'm not going to hold you hostage for too long this morning, but we're not going to, um, uh, we're going to kind of do both. We're going to go big, we're also going to go small. And I hope that this is going to spur you on to see a vision uh, uh, of what Christianity is going to be able to do in the very unique times that we're living in, that the work of the gospel can indeed provide uh, something that is drastically missing right now in our nation and even with those around us. 
So just a, an, a brief introduction, a couple of questions I have is, how do two disagreeing parties find reconciliation? Uh, how do two warring parties find reconciliation? How does one find forgiveness from those it seems impossible to extend to? When somebody is wounded from somebody else's sin, even against themselves, how and where do they look for, for uh, love for them? How do you still love those who have sinned against you? How do you still extend forgiveness to those who have sinned against you? All these kinds of questions, and just to go big right now, that was personal, to go large in our nation right now, as we, I think we all are aware, unless you live underneath a rock, we're a little bit polarized in our nation. Tensions have been high for quite some months and does not seem to be necessarily going away anytime soon. A uh, New York Times article quoted uh, these social scientists having done studies way back in October that says the kind of polarization that we find in our nation today, it even exceeds long-standing antipathies around race and religion. That people who have um, a, a, a different identity, say, in a political party are not just political opponents, according to a CBS recent poll, but rather are enemies. That's how they perceive one another. And even so much so that that poll ended um, saying that a majority of Americans said that other Americans were the greatest threat to America. This is the time we live in, right? And Jonah chapter 3 is remarkably uh, relevant to this conversation. As we, before we read in Jonah chapter 3, just want to remind you that Syria is, uh, uh, Nineveh is one of the major cities in Assyria. <clears throat> and what we find is uh, these are brutal, vicious people. I mean, uh, so remarkably enough, when they were actually doing a dig in Nineveh, they found massive clay tablets. And these massive clay tablets carried pictures and different drawings from Assyria, actually from Nineveh, from this time, actually documenting uh, Assyria's uh, uh, siege of the Israelite city Lachish. It's documented in Isaiah chapter 35, 2 Kings 18. They found tablets telling the story from the Assyrians' point of view. <clears throat> and what they found was little pictures. That's what they did. Just think how brutal this would be, okay? Here's the wall around uh, Lachish. Some of the Israelites who were captured, they would literally skin alive. They would impale on poles and start dotting them around the city walls to incite terror and fear into the Israelites saying, hey guys, we're coming for you. You're going to be just like them soon enough. These were brutal, brutal people. And here we are, God sending somebody to go and minister to them from his own people. So a brief recap, Jonah hit rock bottom. He was reborn. We talked about this kind of pregnant imagery from the fish. He was reborn into a new start, spit into the dry land. He's like a new baby. He gets a new second chance. And God in chapter three, he says, okay. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. And he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. That reads differently. Last time God said go, and Jonah said nope, and he went that way. He's actually responding this time. Great, it seems that that change of heart has actually taken place. It seems that maybe perhaps Jonah is ready. So he goes to Nineveh, okay? 
And uh, continue on in verse chapter 3, it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the digs, they found the city was seven miles in circumference, huge for the ancient world. And they can say it was about maybe three days it would take to really get from every, into every little corner of this city as he was preaching. And the, it's, this is the comic book stuff kind of here. It's kind of funny. He's on day one, just one day's journey. And in the Hebrew, his sermon is only five words. Okay, imagine a five-word sermon. It's impossible for me. I'm sorry. It's just never going to happen. I could always say I would try and get up, you know, and never do it. Five words. And again... These are the enemies, like these are the bad guys. These are the ones that were constantly putting pressure on Israel. These are the ones that were against them. And Jonah finds himself in the middle of the city wondering, am I going to get my head cut off from this? Like, what's going to happen? And he says five words, and the whole city is like, ah, you're right. Oh, we're repenting. Everybody, listen to what happens. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happened? The people. This is like day one. Minimal effort, five words. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The word actually means trusted. They trusted on God, right? They, they responded. It wasn't just an empty faith. It was an action-filled faith. They all called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Just imagine this. He's walking around. He's just having a short little sermon prepared, like quite literally short. And everybody around him is just like dropping in repentance. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Lord, what do we do? It's fast. Let's do. What are we going to do? And Jonah's probably wondering, what is going on? Like, this is the absolute last thing you would anticipate from these foreign Assyrians, right? This is the last thing you would anticipate. And he gets even a little more humorous in verse 6. The word then reached the king to Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, he removes his robe, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. He said, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to his God mightily to God, excuse me. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is like flailing repentance. This is so intense that they said, what, how far can we go to, like, to, to show our, just how sorrowful we are? The animals, like maybe the animals can repent too. Like maybe they don't eat and we put sackcloth on them. And it's, it is kind of funny, right? See, you think of oxen like walking around with sackcloth in mourning. And oxen's like, oh, I'm just hungry, you know. But this is how far they went. And you can know this is sincere because they actually said, you know, going to the links they did, they said, who knows? Maybe he'll listen to us, but maybe he won't. That doesn't change their response. That's remarkable sincerity, right? It's even almost like a quasi kind of acknowledgement that says, maybe we are actually worthy to be overthrown. Maybe there's a chance we can escape this. I don't know, but we're sorry. We're grieved to the core, so much so that our animals are grieving. We're making them grieve with us, right? This is how far that it went. 
perhaps God would listen. Their repentance was not dependent on God changing his mind. They were simply grieved over their sin and they responded in absolute humility. And what happens? And again, Jonah's probably walking around just trying to keep up with the speed of this, saying, what is going on? What is really, this is insane. And then sure enough, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, what did God do? Did he, no, he relented. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. How do we understand a sermon, uh, a, a story like this? I'm telling you, in all the ancient Near Eastern stories, there's nothing like this, of a nation sending one of its prophets to go on behalf of their own God to minister and to preach to the very enemies of that nation. Nothing else is like this in the ancient Near East. Where would any kind of motivation that makes any reasonable sense in this world would drive somebody to want to go walk into enemy territory alone and seek uh, of their response and repentance to warn them of judgment that is coming. What would drive somebody to do that? We have to recount briefly the, the story of Scripture that's found here if we are to understand such a motivation because I would argue this is unique to Christianity. You're not going to find this anywhere else. Right? You just simply are not because this has been God's plan. Jonah is like a little puzzle piece to God's larger plan. Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, look, I'm choosing you. You're just kind of like a, 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 a means to a greater end here because through your family, everyone is going to be receiving a blessing, including these Ninevites right here through a child of Abraham, right? The world is going to receive a blessing through your family one day, Abraham. That's why I'm choosing you for. And such a mission from God leads God's people to be Peculiar, like Jonah here. Peculiar, because no one else was doing these things. It was strange. If you were a neighbor of Israel and you heard about this story, you'd been, even if you part lived in Israel, you'd been like, what? Like, no, 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 no. We, 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 don't, we don't do something nice to our enemies here. Like, we, we don't go warn them. We just kill them. Like, no, that's not how this works here. They're against us. And God said, no, 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 no. I want to warn them first, because maybe they'll listen. And he knows, of course, they will. This is peculiar. You know, Jesus talked about this too. We talked about this last fall, Matthew chapter 5, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. This is the peculiar, strange teachings that we find in our scriptures. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven because he makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust, on the evil and the good and sends rain. For if you love those who love you, what reward is there for you? What was in this for Jonah? What did he personally benefit for putting his neck out on the line? Nothing. There's nothing in it for Jonah, right? How would you benefit from such a mission because this world doesn't think this way. Like, what would you get out of this to do something like this? What improvement would loving your enemy bring to your life? For Jonah, is putting himself in danger, potentially being yelled, attacked, who knows, arrested, trampled on, right? And to understand this, right, I think we have to kind of think about and understand who are people and who is God? First and foremost, God is Abba, Father. He's Daddy. He's your Daddy. He's my Daddy. 
in the most affectionate way possible. And there are billions of people in this world who are his image bearers, who perhaps billions are wavered for him, but he still sees them and says, those are my children and I want them back. I've been pursuing them since all the way when Adam and Eve first tried to figure out this life that I gave them on their own terms. And I've been pursuing humanity ever since then. I told Abraham that you are just a means for me to bring a blessing to this world. Those are his children as well. Those are his children in Nineveh. And he wanted to use his people to go and bring a blessing to them, to make himself known among them. We also know that if you know Jesus this morning, then when you first met him, you were an enemy of him. Romans 5 is very clear. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we now have become agents of reconciliation for those who are outside of him right now. That even while we were enemies, this is where this begins, guys. You understand what drives something like this in Jonah 3. It's recognizing that while you were an enemy, Jesus died for you. And he was raised for our justification, and we are now saved by his new life. Because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this led to, we haven't mentioned it yet, this is Pentecost today, right? In the church calendar, this is traditionally the date that we look back at the day of Pentecost. And we recognize there that it wasn't just for one people group, but God said, no, 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 no. When Jesus rose from the dead and he filled his 120 disciples with his spirit and they walked out on their balcony and started just uh, preaching of the glories in God in tongues, they simply did not know. And it says that surrounding them on this feast of a holiday were just people from every nation under heaven hearing of the glories of God in their own tongue. And they said, what is this all about? God was showing I want the world back and I'm going to do it through my people and I will even do it through supernatural means or whatever I must do to get my children back. As those people became Christians, thousands were baptized that day. They scattered back to their homes all over the world, all over the Roman Empire and thus the seeds of a global faith were planted that broke through not just the Jewish nation but also Gentiles. And in centuries, the world was literally flipped upside down. In Revelation, you see glimpses of heaven where every tribe, every tongue, every nation is fill, has filled heaven. And people who were then formerly enemies of God, as we see in the very last chapter of Revelation, knowing him now, they're joined in marriage to the God that they were at once at enmity of. And that is the shalom that we all look forward to in that day. And the story of Jonah is just like a little puzzle piece, kind of middle of the story. That it's like a little breadcrumb, right, of, of God's heart for the nations. I, I, I found some stories. I knew these stories before. I didn't find them, but I knew of them beforehand. I'm going to read one in particular that's radical. I mean, it's hard to read this and not get choked up because you have to imagine that there's nobody outside of this kind of plan of God. Nobody's outside of it. Even the most wicked, hard-hearted, murderous person you could conjure up in your imagination is not outside of this, and God is even seeking them. Listen to this story. 
from uh, June 14th, Friday, 1946. Day 155 of the trials of the major Nazi war criminals, criminals, the Nuremberg trials. It was happening. It was Friday, June 14th. The trials are about halfway over. On day 155, Franz von Papen, I'm brutal, I don't know how to speak German, so I don't know. Hitler's vice chancellor, he was on the witness stand. And while he was on the witness stand, Hans Fritsch, E, maybe, the Nazis' chief media propagandist, he was hard at work writing a, scurrying about writing a letter. As the world watched these events, as, as dozens of Nazi leaders were being tried for the deaths of millions of people, the blood quite literally on these men's hands, Fritz was sending a letter to a little unknown woman in Missouri, Mrs. Alma Garricky, in South St. Louis, Missouri, a simple farmer's wife. Mrs. Alma Garricky was married to a farm boy named Henry Garricky who had been gone for a few years, as most men in America were, and he was a chaplain for the USA Army. Mrs. Alma did not know much about where her husband was or what was exactly happening, but she did know that people were returning home, and she got word that he was going to stay, and she said, I just want my husband back. She wrote a letter saying, honey, get home. Stop. Just come home. I need you home. On that Friday morning when Mrs. Alma checked her mail, she opened up a letter from Nuremberg, Germany. What she read would astonish her, as it has been later been said, this is probably the most extraordinary letter ever sorted by the Postal Service in Missouri. As Alma Garricky opened the letter, it read, Frau, I don't know how, that's another German word, Miss Garricky, whatever that is. Your husband, Pastor Garricky, has been taking religious care of the undersigned defendants during the Nuremberg trial. He has been doing so for more than half a year. We now have heard, dear Mrs. Garricky, that you wish to see him back home after his absence of several years. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off your wish to gather your family around you at home for a little time. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. During the past months, He has shown us uncompromising friendliness of such a kind that he has become indispensable for us in an otherwise prejudiced environment which is filled with cold disdain and hatred. Our dear Chaplain Garricky is necessary for us not only as a minister, but also as a thoroughly good man that he is. Surely we need not describe him as such to his own wife. We simply have come to love him. It is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us in a spiritual sense, even stronger than a material one. Therefore, please leave him with us. Yes, her husband had been assigned to be the chaplain and the pastor of some of the worst criminals in the history of the world. And below the contents of the letter were the 21 signatures of some of the highest-ranking Nazi officials in Hitler's regime, the men literally responsible for the terror the world had seen. Imagine getting that letter in your mailbox. Far from a prodigal prophet, Henry Garricky ministered faithfully to each of these men as they stood trial. He had a makeshift chapel within the cells that these men were locked in and daily ministered to their needs. Some kept their hard heart of stone, 
But as the testimony is readily available, many of them broke, and many of them met Jesus. And as these murderous men were led to the gallows, they requested Gerike to be standing next to them as they wept tears of grief, but also tears of joy, knowing that their new salvation was upon them. And Gerike stood in confidence by their side. There's many more radical stories I could tell you today of Amish parents in 2009 who had children slain in a school by a mass shooter who, when that family was burying their son, who then proceeded to take his own life, who killed these children, the parents of those children show up at this guy's funeral and tells his parents, we forgive him. Of David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, murderer, who is now Pastor Berkowitz in prison because he met Jesus and now shepherds those around him. Of missionary Gary Witherall, author of the book Total Abandon, whose wife Bonnie was murdered in Lebanon while caring for Palestinian refugees. And Gary, full of the spirit, pursued his wife's killers to love them, to serve them, and tell them about Jesus. Stories could abound and abound. How and where does some, some kind of motivation come from to do these almost supernatural things? It's the love of Christ that compels us because nothing in this world makes reasonable sense of such actions. But only when you look to the cross and only when you know that your position before Jesus is one of an enemy can anyone and everyone that you lock eyes with as you see, you too are worthy to know Jesus. You too are in the image of God. I don't care what you've done or what you have done or what you will do. The cross is enough to pay for your sins. And the resurrection is enough to give you newness of life even now. This is what makes Christianity strange. In a nation that, because of different political beliefs, we find ourselves at as enemies around a dinner table. We read stories like this, and I even say, wait a minute, right? Can't the church be a little unique right now and not be caught up in all of this insanity and culture? Because I'm telling you, people are going to get exhausted out there. They're going to find a place that's safe to say, where can I find love and care? Because I'm not finding it literally anywhere out there except for the people that only agree with everything I believe in, Right? This is a call, church, to say, no, 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 like, we're unique in this. Grace is available for everyone who places their faith in Jesus. These doors are open to everyone to walk through them, regardless of skin color, regardless of who you voted for in the last presidential election. These doors are open for everyone because Jesus wants them. So as we conclude today, um, uh, personally, are you struggling with forgiveness? Are you clinging to the bitter root of just, just uh, a, a lack of, of forgiveness for somebody who has either sinned against you in your own life, somebody that has robbed you of something, has taken away something from you? Are you sitting on that root of bitterness? Look at this Jonah chapter 3 and realize God has a plan for that person and he needs you to go, just like Jonah. I love them. As a community of people in these tumultuous times, can we be a people of love for those who disagree with whatever political views you may have or whatever other opinions or thoughts you may have? 
Can we be a church that does not participate in that kind of polarization, but one that we have somebody that wears a MAGA shirt and a BLM shirt sitting next in a pew together, worshiping Jesus together and say, look, nowhere else you're going to find this because Jesus loves everyone here. And these doors are open to everyone here. And I love my brother and sister, regardless of who they support or what group they identify with or what have you. In Jesus, we find unity and grace with one another. Is that possible? It is possible. And I want it to be possible here. Friends, if we can't figure this kind of thing out, our gospel witness is going to be diminished in this age. Because it's going to exhaust the world around us. And as they're looking out for answers, may we have one here in our church family. May there be answers here between us. The story of Jonah 3 shows us God's heart towards even the most wicked and God's heart to reconcile humanity to himself. Let us live as agents of reconciliation and grace towards all around us, keeping our eyes fixed on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to call up the worship team as we close this morning. We have one more song. If, if the Lord has done anything in your heart this morning, please don't leave without facing it and dealing with it. If the Spirit is tugging in your spirit this morning, please don't just harden your heart and walk away. We will have people available for prayer afterwards. Let me pray for you guys now. Jesus, I pray for those sitting in these pews. If there is that root of bitterness, would you deliver it from them, Lord? Would they keep their eyes on you and on the cross so that you have forgiven us, that even while we were enemies, you loved us much more. Are we to then go and be agents of reconciliation for those who are even now, even our enemies or any enemies of you? Lord, you loved us so much, so much that you gave yourself for us that we may avoid and be saved from the wrath of God and be given new life. Lord, may we be agents of that in our lives, of that good news. And Lord, I pray this as a church in the city of Wilmington, that it's, in and of itself has just a, a complicated history, Lord, of, of tension even here. Lord, I pray that we can be an example that stands unique and apart from what this culture and this world is currently offering that a unity that supersedes all these political boundaries can be found here, Lord, that transcends those things, Lord. May you give us love and empathy and compassion and grace. May you preserve us, as we'll see next week, from just the angriness and bitterness that Jonah still had when he saw people that he did not want to repent, actually repent. Lord, would you, would you preserve us from that? And will we lock arms together in such a time as this, Lord? And may many see your love for one another, and may they see it and be drawn to it and meet you, Jesus, for the very first time. Lord, bring renewal to our nation, bring renewal to our country through us and use us, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.